the big thing for me is we can have all the data we, we want, um, but until you turn that into information, turn that into knowledge, you know, produce insights from that knowledge, you can't make impact. Um, and, and ultimately for value, the value proposition for clients is all about impact. It's not about just collecting data. Hello everyone, and welcome to FutureX, a podcast by Martin Hearn, event director, FutureBuild, and co-host Dr. Oliver Jones, research director, Rider Architecture. FutureX will bring together some of the brightest minds and some of the most disruptive thinkers and innovators to transform the construction industry and build a FutureX community of like-minded people that can begin to make a real change. We really hope you enjoy the series. Hello and welcome to FutureX. I'm Martin Hearn, event director at FutureBuild and once again very pleased to be joined by my co-host Dr Oliver Jones at Rider Architecture. Oliver, got three guests this week. Oh, it's a big one today. We're, we're shaking things up. Uh, we've got Graham Kelly joining us, Managing Director from the BIM Academy, who's going to give us a bit of an industry insight into how data is being used to drive climate action and climate change and to accelerate us towards uh, addressing our 2050 goals. Uh, so some really interesting insights there from industry. Um, and then we've got the guys from Zero Next, um, who who. It was such a great conversation. It was so fantastic to see that there's such passion and such energy around climate action, but that it's got a backbone of data that's driving it. Absolutely. You know, Zero Next is an offshoot of the Zero Construct um, activist movement, uh, really making waves at the moment. Um, just done quite a, a provocative talk at Digital Construction Week. Um, we've got two of their founders. We've got Tasha Greenfield, and um, she's at Natural Building Systems. Um, and we've got Julia Papa um, at uh, index as well so you know data is a massive theme this week and the use of digital tools in driving that net zero agenda and i know at bim academy we talk about two big projects that you're quite involved in at rider as well yeah so the graham's going to cover a project called project aquila which is around how we make plant and site equipment way more efficient with a really intelligent but very simple scalable solution to produce almost a, a national digital resourcing twin for plant and site equipment that helps us reduce emissions. Um, and then there's a project that I've been way more closely involved with over the over the last five years, which is around sensor integration into social housing and into our buildings so that we can better understand the energy performance, the environmental performance and its impact on occupants and occupants behavior. So Super excited for Graham to tell us a bit more about those projects. Um, let's get him on. Brilliant. Hey, Graham, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Oh, very good, mate. Very good. And it's, it's good to have you on. I think just to make everyone aware of, uh, of why we've got you you guys on the, on the show, we've got Zero Next, a really interesting uh, interview with Zero Next, a young professionals uh, climate network who... Uh, are really pushing um, the use of data in the work that they're doing and, and the need to monitor um, and baseline in order to improve. And I thought it was a fantastic opportunity to, to introduce the FutureX listeners to BIM Academy, a sister company of, of Rider, um, and the work that you guys have done, uh, particularly some of the really interesting projects around using data to reduce carbon emissions uh, on the likes of Project Aquila, and maybe even some of the work that that we've done together on um, sensor integration into buildings to to improve environmental performance by using data and um, harvesting data from sensors within buildings. So, Graham, before we kick off and you tell us a bit about those projects, 
just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what, what did you study? Where are you from? How did you get to the position that you're in? Yeah, thanks, Ollie. Um, in terms of myself, um, went to Loughborough University to do a degree in construction management. Um, fascinated by you know how we build um, buildings all over all over the world, and um, you know the the degree gave me a real insight into that. I was I was unfortunate enough to leave. Um, uni in in 2008 2009 um right smack bang in the middle of the recession um complete uh meltdown of the construction industry um so so really struggled to sort of get get a job at that point which um allowed me to to sort of reflect a little bit on what i was what i was genuinely sort of interested in um and off the back of that um went back to university so i think i was at university for Good, good 10 years in the end um doing a phd looking at um how buildings change over time which i think for me was was absolutely fascinating to to look at how you know our architectural design profession tend to concentrate on new builds um rather than focus on you know learning lessons from from their own past buildings um so i did a the phd was really about how we produce better feedback um, for the design profession um, to make better adaptable buildings, design better adaptable buildings moving forward. And I suppose that's where, you know, data and sustainability came in um, to, to the passion as well, in the sense that um, ultimately we can collect um, all sorts of data around our buildings. Um, and, and if we mine that in the right way and, and ask the right questions of that data, you know, we can make really impactful insights into into what that looks like. So um, that sort of started the passion. And, and at the end of near the end of that PhD, um, there was a really obvious um, opportunity around um, adding feedback to um, visual mechanisms, 3D models and floor plans, um, you know, stuff that designers use every day. So I think one of the one of the key things that came out of the out the PhD was um, when we do look at existing buildings and do postal community evaluations and, and all sorts of everything's a report at the end of it and and ultimately no one's got time or energy to read these reports um, and and what we need to do is 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 create visual um, sort of feedback around you know that people can explore so there's loads of stuff around knowledge management loads of stuff around um, you know how how we best do that. Um, create that visual impact and that's when I started looking at BIM so that was you know 2000, 2011 2012 um, as, it, as it was sort of in its infancy in terms of the, the sort of world that we live in now um, and started looking at those the opportunities to to look at how we attach data to models to make better design decisions moving forward um, and that's when I was fortunate enough to start working for BIM Academy um, in a research role looking at how um we use information management bim to better operate our buildings so again it was all about the operation of the building all about buildings in use um so i, I joined bim academy 2012 um was doing that research role very fortunate to go to go around the the country really speaking to some experts at that time um about bim and fm because bim and fm was really really in its in its infancy Nine months into that opportunity came up to apply 
or or go for a um, a role um, at the Sydney Opera House, um, looking at how they um, well, uh, use BIM to support their um, their FM. So it's basically exactly what I've been doing for sort of nine nine months, and then a bit about the PhD as well. So so BIM Academy applied for that. We're very very fortunate to win that um, work, and that and that really set the course for my career ultimately in in the sense that um we i went over there for four months um really understood what they did now the systems they had in place the data that they were collecting um how they were managing that a hugely um exciting but complex building um and um put in place a specification for a a system that would improve um the way that they managed that that building and then we've we've kind of replicated that throughout and so um since then we've you know a lot of our consultancy work's been about really really understanding client need and client value um because the, the big thing for me is we can have all the data we need we we want um but until you turn that into information turn that into knowledge you know produce insights from that knowledge you can't make impact um and and ultimately for value the value proposition of clients is all about impact it's not about just collecting data you guys have had some some pretty big clients on the on the books as well over the years. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think um, you know, looking back at 2012, we're potentially a bit of a niche industry, and 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 but we've built a fantastic um, brand and name um, in supporting you know clients all over the world, from Lego to um, to um, the Royal Household to um, House of Parliament to um, the Hong Kong Hospital Authority to. You know, M Plus Museum in Hong Kong. Um, so yeah, we've been really fortunate that um, you know BIM and 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 how we manage our information better in a digital form has, has taken us around the world, uh, and we've been able to support um, you know clients all all over the world in in um, starting to improve um, improve what they do, um, and that's yeah. So there's yeah, I guess that's a little bit about about what I've what I've been doing, what I've been up to. Um, cool, and, and we, when I joined uh, Ryder in my role, I think you guys were really kicking off with Project Aquila, and um, we'd done some work on sensor integration together before, and we'll come on to that. But the, you know, tell us a bit about the data that was used to drive sustainable reduction in carbon emissions on uh, Project Aquila. Yeah, absolutely. So Project Aquila stands for um, an eagle-eyed view of site. Um, ultimately. The idea behind that, and we've done a couple of funded research projects through Innovate UK with with Aquila, um, is that the plant and equipment on site um, is hugely inefficient, and on large infrastructure sites can cost up to fifty percent of the total project value is in is in plant and equipment. Um, on top of that, you know, plant and equipment is um, a huge emitter of of um of fossil fuels and and um and carbon in, into our atmosphere um you know seven percent of all nox levels from london and you think about the traffic in london comes from construction of plant and equipment so um huge emitter um and that's just in london so the idea behind aquila was how do we improve the productivity utilization of plant and equipment on site to make um the overall use of this plant and equipment um much less and therefore emit much less 
um, because we before we get to you know the ability to use electric um, plant, uh, which is a, a fair way off based on on the size of the batteries you need to run a you know a, a 20 30 ton excavator for 12 hours a day. Um, how do we how do we sort of basically maximize the the um, utilization of, of that plant equipment? So what what we what we saw what we did um, and we um, went around the houses looking at, at different ways of doing this. But what we what we ultimately landed on was the use of a, a, a an IoT device. And in this case, it was a, a mobile phone. Mobile phone is the cheapest way to get GPS accelerometer and gyroscopic data in the same place. Um, and obviously, um, you know, mobiles are sold all over the world. So the, the scale of economies there is uh, is fantastic in terms of getting all that at a very low cost. So it was basically about taking a mobile phone, creating an application on, on that, um, putting that into every cab of, um, of plant equipment on a site, and then linking that up to um, a dashboard that would would dictate and and tell the site manager what um, plant equipment was working on, and then linking that to the project program, and also linking that to um, a three D model of the site. So they had a contextual again visualization of of um, where that plant equipment was on site, um, and and it was really about trying to make the complex simple. It was about trying to you know, give the power in the hands of the of the site manager. You know, a couple of quotes from that was, if I could look at a dashboard on a computer and and see where you know where the red red alerts were versus you know green that was everything was good to go, it would save them um, an awful lot of time driving around site on radios. You know, checking on the um, on the guys on in the in the cabs and checking on what they were doing. Um, also. Um, just really simple stuff like idle times, behavior change of of the um, of the equipment operators. Um, you know, trying to um, replan. So planning on on large infrastructure sites tends to be, you know, start with a macro level, and then they do a, tend to do a weekly plan of what's happening. But there's no real flexibility in, and and um, agility around how they how they do that. But giving them you know, very, very near real time um, results of where all their plant equipment is, what it's working on, whether it's working or idle or off, um, allows them to make really agile decisions on, on what happens on site. So all of this was around building up, improving productivity and therefore reducing idling time, reducing, you know, those emissions that when they weren't needed on site and, and ultimately trying to improve um, the speed of that, of that site. So we focused on... Um, Sort of three different areas, which was contrast uh, construction traffic logistics, um, which was looking at average speed, average haul time, you know, percentage of idle time, percentage of efficiency, and then we it was monitoring the program performance, so linking all that to the program, um, and then managing a whole fleet. So again, um, you know, something like HS2, they the, the estimates are they're sort of 500 dumper trucks short, and they're not. They're not 500 dumper trucks short, but they are. It, it appears that way because the utilization rate's down at 30, percent and there's a there's a pooling of of um, dumper trucks sitting with different contractors, and there's no way of sharing them. There's no mechanism for doing that. Um, so there's loads of redundancy, loads of duplication. Um, so it's it's really about trying to how how do you sort of manage that on a on really complex sites, and the only way you do that is through that 
that data application and, and bringing that to the fore in the dashboard um, and trying to make that as simple as possible to, to move that forward. So we're, again, it, it was a research project where we're, we're trying at the moment for a bit more funding um, to look at how we commercialize this product moving forward. Because um, we've already proven that there's a significant amount of um, impact and value that can be made through through just this these this data that we're getting from that um, project. And in terms of the, it's really encouraging the results. I mean, I've seen the results coming through on Aquila. Um, it, the cost savings huge as well on something like that. You know, if you look at HS2, which you know national infrastructure projects tend to go wildly over budget. So the, the, it's a no-brainer in terms of me and the, the use of this almost sort of national plant digital twin for large-scale national infrastructures um, and being able to sort of intelligently resource those kind of projects from multiple suppliers. It, it just seems like the, the logical next step that we need to do and the benefit of doing that is that like you say there's there's a, there's a clear carbon reduction because we're being way more efficient in the in the plant and site equipment so i think it's a great example of how data can really drive um and accelerate us towards uh, addressing the climate emergency all right in in terms of in terms of some of the other projects you guys have worked on let's jump on to the sensor one because you know that's pretty close to my heart in terms of some of the stuff that you guys have been doing with that really interested in the fact that it also monitors internal environmental performance and, and internal air quality as well um so you know give us a little potted history of that as well Graham. yeah absolutely so um we started a, a research project in 2017 we, we um intelligently called it smart connected buildings um generally because we couldn't think of a uh, a small a small um title um but that was that was um, working with your Homesley Castle, which are a housing association in, in the northeast of England, um, and National Energy Foundation, looking at how we um, could support um, landlords, but, but ultimately um, vulnerable tenants within housing associations um, and, and improve their, the occupant well-being within those, within those spaces. So we, um, we uh, at the time, put in uh, 60 sensors into some um, some flats in in north of just north of Newcastle, um, and they were measuring uh, internal air quality, um, energy consumption, so both electric and gas, um, uh, humidity, light, movement, um, basically everything that we could get our hands on with 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 the sensors that we had at the time, um, and the idea behind that um, building, you know, thirteen percent of of um, social social um, tenants are, are fuel poor and that was this is way before the you know the um, the cost of living crisis you know that that's only going to increase the housing associations were never sure about the quality of the buildings that they were being handed over so that performance gap piece that, that we've, we've you know I'm sure you've talked about before around you know design performance versus actual performance um, your homes in castle which is relatively small housing association compared to some of the the larger um the larger ones down south you know twenty seven thousand homes um in the in the northeast and, and beyond um they spend about five hundred thousand pound a year just on mold repair and so mold it, it is ultimately based on poor internal um environment high high humidity you know um damp um that kind of thing 
and potentially and cold. So there was loads of stuff around, you know, cold homes quadruple the maintenance cost for landlords. Um, so there was this real like pull and push. So landlords need to save money. Um, they're reactive to loads of maintenance and their tenants aren't getting the best quality um, uh, homes that they could have. Um, and so what we were looking at in that space and, and, and the data that we pulled was, was absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, in terms of, in terms of the, the drop off in, in, um, in, in the, um, temperature of the homes, as soon as the, um, as soon as the heating went off, therefore, you know, the, they're not as well insulated as, as possibly specified. Um, and there was, there's loads of sort of instances of, of how we could improve the, the occupant wellbeing. So we've, we've sort of taken that, all of the learning from that, um, and we, we've started a, almost a self-study of, of um, some of our office buildings um, within Ryder and Boom Academy. So we started with Cooper Studio, our head office in, in Newcastle, um, really just doing a bit of analysis around, yes, internal air quality as well, but, but again, around um, electricity and gas use. Um, and and we, we quite crude in the way that we did this to start with, we took a metering data every half hour um, within it, but it, but it showed some unbelievable sort of insight into what we're doing um and again you know we're the first to hold our hands up and say that we were using way too much energy and, and still are with regards to our annual profiles um we did it really interestingly as well we did the comparison between 2019 2020 and 2021 so um there was some real stark differences obviously no one was in the office in 20 um 2020 april 2020 we did a we did a study then but we were still up at you know 2021 20, kilowatt hours during between half four half four in the afternoon and half eight at night and it's like <laughs> why you know um and but i think the, the key again is until you get those insights until you get you know collect the data start to extrapolate and start to visualize it you don't you don't see that um we made some changes to the bms which was the obvious um opportunity that was there but then that's reduced the peaks but but almost increase the baseline. Um, so again, there's more, there's more shuffling and more tweaks that we can do within that within that space. Um, so what we try to do is is utilize the data there to to improve the sort of baseline around energy use. What we're trying to do now is link that again to um, a digital twin of the office. Um, looking at then around the insights that we can get through um, visualizing that data ultimately. Um, in 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 what we're doing so that so that's the the sort of next step is is to is to take the learning from smart connected buildings take the learning that we're getting from the energy um consumption and and the, the data we're collecting there and then combining that into a digital twin of the of the office we'll then roll that out to the other offices uh, in the uk and and further afield uh to to try and improve um, our energy consumption so that we can hit our net zero mm -hmm. target for operational and net zero by 2025. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like you guys really need to hook up with the, the guys from zero next and, and track some of the work that they're doing as well, or even contribute some case studies. Cause there's a, there's definitely a groundswell around this use of data to drive climate action. Um, and you know, you, you guys have been working in that space for so long now it's second nature, but I think everybody's beginning to wake up to if you don't measure it how the hell can you improve it so you know it, it, some, some really encouraging steps being made Graham just finally while we've got you it'd be great to 
to just hear your your take on um, sort of the future of national digital twins and you know how is is, is that going to improve things in terms of sustainability? You know how how is that going to shake out? How would you like to see it shake out? Um, you know what do you want to see from from the future of BIM and national digital twins in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, absolutely, I think it's it's a, a fantastic fantastic initiative. I think um, it's a huge initiative, uh, and the premise around it, around you know the Gemini principles and, and having open, transparent data and and um, that shareable data and, and making sure that um, you know anyone um, security allowing, I suppose, can can exploit the data in, for good. And that, for me, is is the is the crux of it. Uh, you know, when you say national digital twin, everyone thinks you can have a, you know, a digital twin of the whole of the UK. That's not what it's about. It's about interoperability. It's about you know the connection of lots of different things. So, Aquila using the same standards and data standards as as other um, digital twins that are, that are happening. You know, for Northumbria Water, for instance, or you know all all sorts that's happening around the world, around the world and around the UK. Um, so that interoperability and that and that is is absolutely key. The the big soapbox for me is about value and about value proposition. And you know we've uh, myself and you, Ollie, have seen you know over the years and speaking to various people, loads of people collecting data now, not necessarily sure what to do with it. We need to we need to close that gap between you know just collecting data and the solutions we're trying to inform. So really easy for Rider. We want net zero by 2025 operationally. Um, how do we go about this? Well, we need to we need to collect our energy consumption. Really easy from uh, from a use case within Aquila. We want to reduce the duplication, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and and then you you go about answering that problem with with um, the collection of that of specific data. So I think that for me is the the crux of all of this is is about understanding the problems you're trying to solve, understanding the value before just jumping in and collecting data. Graham, it's clear that you know we've got the digital tools you know to make a real difference, but across the industry, adoption you know is still you know a, a struggle. Right? You know we talk a lot about the barriers to specification, the barriers to bringing in new innovations. What are you seeing at the moment as sort of the key barriers to you know, mass adoption? going forward it's it it's a lot about it's a lot about the standard barriers around cost and time and 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 value proposition and 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 i suppose demonstrating and proving that value proposition to clients who um you know inevitably are um already short of cash already um you know fighting fires already reacting to um to what they're doing you know there's a there's something like a 15 billion um, pound backlog in maintenance um in the nhs you know, and it, you know when you've got that size backlog of maintenance, it's very difficult to pull your head out and and start to understand, um, you know how you solve that. And so we again big push on on we're working with loads of NHS trusts around, you know how do they use data to improve what they're doing with, um, their asset management and 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 reducing that backlog because at the minute, it's so reactionary, it's so um focused on you know if something breaks, fix it rather than you know preventative maintenance plan maintenance you know on taking data to understand that so and that's going to take time to turn around because you, you the the issue is you've got to react to issues to make sure that you're 
um, you know, keeping people healthy in, in, in hospital environments, but we need a little bit of a helicopter view to, to start to explore how we, how we use data to improve that, um, those outcomes. And, and you showed this by the, just the two you know, different projects that you, you talked about that, you know, we're using digital tools now on such a wide range of, um, you know, projects or, or solutions. Um, you mentioned, you know, getting to net zero by 2025, it's only three years away. What's that? What's the next big thing? What's really in digital space going to have the largest impact uh, within the built environment? So I, I think the next, and it's, uh, to be honest, it's what we've been talking about today, um, is, is, the, is the integration of, of IoT live data, near real-time data with um with the with the buildings the infrastructure the the assets that that come with it um to to make better and more intuitive decisions on on what we do that that for me is the is the real connection and that's you know you can talk about blockchain and, and metaverse and all of these things but they again they're just enablers for you know better insights into what we're doing and i think for me the the, the cheaper sensors get and the more accessible they get and the um the, that's going to be something we were, we're working with you know various developers and fm companies that are um you know deploying thousands and thousands of sensors now because their esg data is so important to them that 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 is um you know it's it's the next big um big step and i think that's actually what's really interesting about that is that it's the um the funds that are asking for that because they have the targets the FM um, layer in the middle that is operating this building isn't quite in that headspace yet. So what what I think is going to be really interesting over the next three years is is um, or next three to five years is is how that FM space then you starts to utilize that data and and who puts a head above the parapet to say they're a data driven FM organization. You know, there's a couple of smaller ones out there at the minute, but the the big FM companies huge. You know, five hundred thousand. Um, employees, et cetera, et cetera. These guys are still not in that space where they're using data to improve how they operate people's buildings. Um, and, and if they're getting pushed from their funds down, you know, I'm sure some of them will start to put that their head up above the parapet. I think that ties in perfectly with some of the stuff that we talked to the Zero Next guys about as well. You know, if we don't take leadership and take action in gathering our own data to, to baseline and monitor and improve, then it's going to come from outside of our industry. It's going to come from the big funds that you're talking about, the people who are really focused, you know, on the billions of pounds being spent around ESG and invested around ESG with all of those targets. And it's going to come from insurers and, and other big players outside of the market. So it's, I think it's absolutely critical. I, I totally agree with you, your points there, Gray. I think it's absolutely critical that we, that we start to integrate more of those devices and we start to sort of monitor and baseline all of our buildings just to, to get those insights and to, to make those make our buildings much more efficient in the way that they operate. Um, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It won't be the first, it won't be the last time, I'm sure. Um, there's loads more that we could probably talk about, but we'll we'll crack on and and go and meet the Zero Next team and have a conversation with them as well. But thanks for thanks for turning up, Graham. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, really enjoy what you're doing, um, and yeah, happy to always happy to talk about um, how we improve our built environment. How do people get in touch with the BIM Academy or find you guys? If you go to 
bimacademy.global um all the details are, are on there um and yeah always happy to have a conversation about um these sorts of things awesome all right man see you soon thank you hi guys thanks for joining us so join with tasha and julia tasha tell us a bit about yourself Hey, so um, I am currently working at Natural Building Systems um, and my background is in architecture. I'm training to be an architect, but I've always been really interested, I guess, in disrupting construction, uh, which sounds a bit silly for an architect uh, to to not want to build or or disrupt construction. Um, But in my current job, we are essentially reforming construction and, and looking at designing a sustainable building system. And through that, I got in touch with Zero, um, or they got in touch with us, actually. Um, and we then ended up building Zero's uh, stand at Digital Construction Week earlier this year. Um, and I think it was through that that we then started Zero Next, um, which I'm now co-leading uh, with Julia. That's a nice link to Julia. Julia, how about yourself? <laughs> Hi, guys. Uh, thank you for having us, first of all. And unlike Tasha my background is not construction related at all Um, so I did economics and statistics in my undergrad and I'm currently studying to become a data scientist uh, at UCL so London based as well Uh, I work with index which is actually disrupting the construction industry so it's a project management platform end-to-end for the whole supply chain we're driving change every day we're striving to change the industry for the better, really. And uh, this ties in quite well with Zero because as we know, uh, we're very, especially me in my mission with Index, I am all things data. I know that what we can measure, we can't change and what we can't manage can't can't also be changed. And we know that as an industry, we need to demand more and set our uh, set more ambitious targets for ourselves. And that includes carbon and the transition towards the net zero carbon You've mentioned you know, disruption quite a lot there, and um, you know it's, it's a common theme we're hearing at the moment. Those, those, you know, the need to disrupt the built environment and the construction industry, you know, in particular. And I know on the notes you gave us, you, you described yourselves as classy activists. So can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Julia, do you want to go, or should I launch <laughs> in with um, Julia, that's Julia's uh, title for us, which I love. Yeah, um, I mean, we call ourselves activists because the current demographics of the construction industry are not taking us too seriously at the moment because obviously we're young with fresh minds, new to the industry, maybe with a couple years of experience each. And we've got loads of good ideas, but we just need a way that someone can listen to us. And I feel like this is the perfect introduction for Zero Next as well. We're relatable, we're nice people. We're just trying to make a change because eventually we're going to be the future leaders of the industry and we're going to have to work with what's being done now. So we want change early enough for us to be able to save something. Tell us a little bit more then. What do, what do you guys stand for? What's it, what's it all about? So Zero, I think Zero was started uh, one or two years ago by uh, James and Jonathan. Um, and, and when Zero started, it was essentially a group of friends who wanted a better industry, who wanted to be building zero carbon buildings. Um, lots of the people who are involved with Zero are quite uh, in the kind of digital space and are all working on quite big, quite high carbon projects. And I think gradually they started realizing that it wasn't good. So that kind of formed and then gradually, I mean, so when I got involved with Zero, I think I was probably the youngest member and I was kind of, I was involved in conversations. We had a leadership 
discussion and I was busy googling c-suite in the background trying to figure out what the c-suite was and I mean it's completely obvious but actually it made me realize that there's a real space within the kind of zero sphere for a kind of safe space for zero next for for young professionals in the construction industry who can discuss what the c-suite is and and talk about things like that and and the issues that young professionals are facing within the construction industry um, and I think that that zero is a massive group and and has people of all ages and we were really keen when we set zero next up for it not to be a separate group but for it to be part of zero but to be a little bubble where we can just chat and and kind of get to know each other on a on a kind of more informal level um, how many how many are you now and, and, and what locations are you active in or is it, is it global so zero is massively global i think this is where i'm going to quote james I think we've got 400 members or over 400 members in 40 countries uh, and it's probably growing. I mean, I'm involved with the kind of membership lists and every day we have so many new people who want to be involved. Um, Zero Next is a little bit smaller and slightly more UK based at the moment, although we do have members in in other countries. I think we've probably got about 25 members, um, but we probably have I mean, in our weekly meetings, they're slightly smaller um, and kind of actually something that we found is really interesting is trying to find a time where young people, uh, because actually it's harder to get time off work to do a meeting. And I know that uh, within architecture, particularly what have it being able to say, can I have an hour off work to, to chat about zero carbon construction uh, isn't a conversation that people are having. So we've now settled to after after work meetings every two weeks. We've also got Zero Next Australia, which is the next big thing. We're going to work on launching it probably next week. We've got a few members already. And as Tasha said, we're still trying to figure out a time that suits everybody because being so widespread across the globe can be a problem when it comes to meetings. Yeah. So you've been going for about six months as Zero Next. And I know you've already made quite an impact. It'd be good to sort of hear some of the things you have done. I know you made quite a splash at Digital Construction Week recently as well. Yes, yeah, so we we kind of uh, zero has started putting us forward as as the activating members of zero, um, and I think it's actually it's really interesting listening to your previous podcast um, about positive activism because I think a lot of our meetings and conversations are kind of quite god this is really hard work why is no one listening to us on our kind of zero carbon mission um and and our previous talks you know about fuck roadmaps act now what are we doing uh and i think we've now our conversations are moving towards more solution-based thinking because actually lots of the people we're talking to know what's going on with the planet you know if people aren't blind to it and and so the the kind of uh i guess activism activating talks that we've been doing where we're kind of showing people what's going on and telling them to act now I think we're going to move towards a kind of much more positive solution-based um, thinking that's influenced by so zero also creating a playbook and I think it'll be more influenced by the knowledge that's shared within zero I think there's a feeling of that isn't there at the moment across the whole environment I think the, you know the recent CCC report talked about well you know we've done the plans, we've got the roadmaps, you know, it's the action that's needed now. You know, if we just keep on spending our time doing more and more roadmaps and, you know, we're not getting anywhere. So I, I think, you know, groups like you are absolutely needed. And I think we've seen across the industry now, that, you know, you mentioned it before, we had ACAN on, we spoke to Letty, the, the action that can come from, which is pretty much these voluntary groups is immense. How do people get involved 
with Zero Next and almost what do you need? You know, what's the additional skills that you need to take yourself to the next level? So we always pride ourselves and Zero Next, but also Zero in being a very diverse, very inclusive uh, environment and group of people from different backgrounds, different roles within the industry that can all add value and unique value. So as uh, Tasha said, we're working on a playbook at the moment, and that is going to be a result of uh, the working groups that have been put in place now. Uh, there are six different working groups. I'm personally in three of them. And as a Zero Next member, it can be quite intimidating because we're the youngest people there. So we're often kind of in, uh, afraid of saying what we think and speaking up. But I think that's going to get easier as the working groups go along. And it's been so cool and so refreshing to be involved in something like this because we're not only like we know what the problem is and now we've taken it one step further and we've stopped sort of complaining and we've started acting and we're actively looking for solutions together we're brainstorming and we're slowly working towards finding what the industry actually needs i think it's so so interesting and i totally agree with you that there's a there's a, a real level of frustration particularly the younger professional levels in the, in the business. And I couldn't agree more. Some, some of the most amazing ideas and innovations, and particularly the startups that we work with and that we talk to on FutureX, you know, those guys are coming straight out of university with, with some game-changing solutions to sustainable materials and sustainable technologies and processes. So I, I absolutely applaud the sort of the, the convening of a, of a network of really enthusiastic, passionate younger people and and, and, I, and I agree what you said before around it being a safe space I think that has been lacking you know it's it's a it's a really encouraging thing to know that there is a safe space for the younger professionals to get together um, and really start to affect some 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 real action some real change so so what have you guys got planned or in the pipeline in terms of the things that you want to address the the action that you want to take so we've so actually Julia, this might be new, but new new news to you. But we so James and I were just talking about what our plan is as zero next separately to zero, um, and I think actually what what we've decided is uh, so we would like to start presenting our vision of the future and kind of drawing from all of the knowledge of all of the people who might have been in the industry for a bit longer and kind of pulling from that and adding to it and being able to present at conferences what we want industry to look like. And I think that kind of what we want industry to look like, not in 2050, we mean in five years time, we want industry to start changing and we want to be able to tell people and explain to people how we can do that and how we can make those changes now that will start kind of moving towards a better world. Um, we've got a couple of events lined up over the next couple of weeks. This is where I'm going to completely forget everything. Um, but so next Wednesday, uh, Owen and I are uh, attending a ACOST E event, uh, their annual conference in Birmingham. We've also got a couple of awards dinners um, and also kind of socials with Zero. So we've got a whole load. And then actually, I mean, so on the chat that James and I were just having, James was talking about introducing a zero conference uh, next. So we're kind of really solely focused on us. Uh, and that will be in about a year's time as well. And You're yeah. obviously welcome to come along. Yeah, <laughs> please do. Yeah, we'll be there. Um, and, and undoubtedly see you guys at Future Build 23 as well. You'll be in good company with Akan and, and Letty and the yeah, other guys that are, are going to be there. So it'll be wonderful to sort of engage more people 
I've noticed that you guys have, have received bits of funding from sort of uh, BIM and data related companies. That's quite new in terms of groups that have come together. And the focus on data is quite interesting as well. You know, is, is there a focus on data um, or does it, is it just a coincidence that, that Julia's into uh, data science and that there is some funding in the data space? Because that could be a real USP of you guys. So Zero, I mean, the background of lots of the people in Zero, as I mentioned earlier, is in a kind of digital sphere. And I think that lots of uh, the people that are involved in Zero and were involved at a really early stage were quite digital. Um, I think that the future of construction is probably going towards a much more digital space. Um, and Julia can probably talk a little bit more about that because Julia is in that, that space at the moment. Yes, so one of the working groups is actually solely focused on data, and that's the one where I'm most active in, I must say. Uh, Not only because I'm very interested in data, I'm a data nerd, but also because my work at Index is based on data. We have reinvented the way that our clients can measure carbon, and that is already disruptive enough. Think what we can do when we all put our minds together in within zero and zero next, and we'll be able to drive real change. Um, there's always three things in my in my vision to accurate carbon capturing and then reducing, and it's measuring, baselining, and planning. Taking a step back, look at what we've been doing right, what we've been doing wrong, and learn from our mistakes. We need to humble ourselves, take a reality check, and say we've been doing this wrong, and you can't do it without data. And I think, as Tasha said, everything transitioning towards digital, hopefully sooner than later, data will play the key role into this transition. I think it's fundamental. I mean, you know, we, we talked about this before, and you, if you're not measuring something, how can you improve it? And, and actually, the, I probably share your frustration with roadmaps to a certain extent in that we, we don't need to redefine the problem one more time. You know, we don't need to go back over the solution one more time. What we need to do is start to measure, start to monitor, start a baseline, start to build our improvements and, and our action plan around how we're going to improve um, from an evidence base. And the only way we can do that is through digital, uh, through data. And, and it get, for me, it gives real potential and real meaning behind the golden thread and behind the, the National Digital Twin Program. You know, it, we're, we're not creating building information models for the sake of having a building information model, we're creating building information models as, as the vehicle to measure and monitor and improve towards a goal. And the goal is um, zero emissions. What is it that you guys are, are focused on around the data collection then and, and, and around capturing? You know, What kind of measures are you looking to capture? We are able to create the full carbon story of any project. So we can, um, with the data, from the workforce inductions, we can calculate their mode of transport to and from work, how long they take, and their carbon emissions into traveling to work and from work. Uh, we do the same for plant and materials. And then we have mid-layer integrations with Department for Transport, DVLA, and Google Maps uh, to calculate all of that. And then with external systems, we calculate the actual carbon footprint of the materials and plant telematics. We integrate with BIM data to accurately predict embedded carbon with the digital twins. So it's very relevant to what you said earlier on. 
And this just enables clients to make decisions on the building solutions, the location of the supply chain, which also has an important role into fighting the skills uh, crisis that is ongoing in the industry. And that tells you how you can improve your methods of construction and base your decision on accurate embedded carbon data so you can actually drive change and reduce your carbon footprint per project. I think, I mean, just going back to the, the kind of roadmaps comment, actually this whole measuring and, and kind of uh, obtaining the data, lots of companies now are saying they're going to reduce their kind of carbon footprint and their carbon spends by 2050. But I bet that lots of the companies that are saying that aren't actually measuring exactly what their carbon footprint is right now. So how do they know that they're going to be able to halve it or get rid of it completely in whatever time frame they're offering? And I think that's something that that Zero is pushing for, as well as Index, is the kind of measuring, creating baselines so that you know what you're doing now so that then we can work to improve it. I find it really fascinating because, you know, you're talking a little while ago about you know, Zero now, four or 500 members. We had Acon on, which is in into the thousands. You've got the UKGBC now over, you know, 800 corporate members. We're all talking and we all want the same thing, but there's obviously big barriers to this change. What are you finding those barriers to be and you know, what do we need to do to address them? I think, I mean, I, this is where my really cynical view of like money talks and it's something that that every conversation we have within the kind of leadership space with the, the zero workshops, but also actually at MBS, no one wants to take the risk of doing something innovative the first time. Everyone loves the idea of talking about it, loves the idea of putting it in. And then they go, let me see a case study. And you go, oh, no, this is in a kind of innovative thing. This is an innovative building system that we've designed as MBS. And, and people go, oh, uh, have you got any case studies? And we go, well, we've got some small buildings. And they go, oh, no. Well, then, yeah, no, sorry. And actually, it's encouraging people to change things and take the risks and it's kind of I mean it's there's a whole load of like conversations around policy and insurance companies and all of those kind of things in changing the way that we're building and doing things that are kind of new and radical and we have lots of really frustrating conversation about bio-based materials and and um materials that are combustible and actually I mean so I don't know whether I'm allowed to say this yet but we had our fire testing yesterday and it went really well and just because we're using bio-based materials doesn't mean that the building's going to burn and we've been building with bio-based materials for years and years it's not innovative to start using timber but for some reason there's a real resistance in industry to start using kind of these what are considered to be innovative materials yeah, it's definitely something we've noticed in, in in a lot of our work with advanced material startups because a huge proportion of them are bio-based um, and or adopting biogenic construction methods and actually, the, one of the biggest hurdles, particularly in the UK market space, is, is that testing and certification around fire. I mean, what's very interesting is that we're now seeing some of the big standards and certification bodies come to the table and, and are actually talking to us around, well, how, how can we create accelerators for standards and certification in this space? Because it's something that we recognise as being so important. But you're right, it is, it's about trying to raise awareness um, across the industry, which I think is quite a challenge. And reduce the risk and increase the viability of using these new materials in projects and demonstrated projects and pilot schemes. And monitor, again, coming back to the data side of it, monitoring and measuring and seeing how, seeing how they perform. We were talking about adopting more scientific methods 
to tackle the problem. And that's exactly what we need to do, in my opinion, because scientific methods are based on trial and error. If we, as you said, if we don't take the risk, we won't be able to know what needs improving. And if we don't know what needs improving, we can't change it. It's always going back to change, isn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think one of my frustrations is, is that, you know, these innovative products or, or, you know, new ways of building, or actually some of them aren't even new ways of building, seem to be on the exemplar projects. And they shouldn't be exemplar because these are scalable solutions that could quite easily come in. And now, you know, I think as an industry, we're very torn. You know, some say, we'll bring in more red tape you know, should we, you know, to bring in these more eco initiatives, et cetera, but at the same time, then we want less regulation. So it's sort of finding that mid ground about how do we accelerate the use of these construction technologies that are scalable and are available now. We, we talked about that earlier today, mm. didn't we, Martin, in that actually, if, if we don't initiate that change in the construction sector ourselves, it'll be initiated for us by ESG, investment funds and, and you know these huge influxes of money that are coming into the space to push these new products and on top of that from the other side by insurers and insurance companies who are wondering you know why aren't you attempting to use the latest materials why aren't you engaging with um with with, with these new solutions when we know they are a, a solution to address the problem that we're facing so something we talk about quite a lot is this idea of giving carbon value and, and whether it's in a carbon tax or whatever. It's so one of the really early kind of zero slides that I saw was comparing the cost. If I said, how much does a cup of coffee cost? You probably all say three pound, three pound, fifty, four pounds, wherever you are. If I said how much carbon is in a cup of coffee? So it's about giving, knowing the value of the carbon behind what we're doing and actually at bringing awareness to that through whatever tools that we're using. Hopefully we will then start, whether it gives it a financial value or whether it's just understanding the value, hopefully we can then see the impact that we're having kind of on the face of it. This, this comes back to the going off grid with Bill Dunster episode yeah. that we did in you know, one of Bill's one of Bill's big asks was why don't I just give everything one number, just give it one number and have that number be the amount of time it will take to pay it off in terms of carbon. So mm -hmm. you know, that laptop will be fifty six. Mm -hmm. That'll be the amount of activity or time that it would take to pay to pay that carbon back. So give everything that carbon number. That's really simple. It's almost like the nutritional printout that you see on food mm -hmm. i was exactly going to say that we mm -hmm. should learn to count carbon like we count our calories we're so good at it and it's so easy why can't we do the same would you say there's a better carbon literacy you know in your network than there is maybe some of the older networks i would probably say no but i don't think i mean because i don't think it really exists anywhere i think there's a bigger awareness that we've got to be careful but I don't think people could actually attribute kind of kilograms of CO2 used or embodied in a particular thing. I, I don't know, Julia, whether in, in your network it's better than it is in mine. No, I completely, I completely agree with you, actually. Um, in fact, one of our mission or maybe even our main mission in Zero as Zero Next is to educate mm -hmm. just because we can learn to quantify the problem itself. And then we can put our heads together to solve it. We know we know the magnitude on a on a general level, but oh, it all leads back to data. I hate to be that person, but it does. No, but yeah, I, think, I think you're right. You, you often see we used the example in the past that it's about putting a number to something. 
and seeing if it sticks and seeing if people agree with it. And if they don't agree with it, fine, let's refine it. Let's, let's, let's make it better and let's understand how it's calculated. And I think something, and I've talked about this previously as well, but something that came out of our episode on the Deep Green Biotech Hub with, um, with our friend Peter Ralph from University of Technology Sydney, these guys totally changed my view of carbon in the actually it might not be about eradicating carbon but it might be about seeing carbon as having a distinct value it's an asset um that actually we don't you know it's a valuable asset that we don't want to plow into the ground or lock into the earth well actually we need to capture it um, in various ways and and use it i thought it's fascinating today and Julia, you made this point around you know, the use of paper that making those small changes can have a huge impact. And we had Duncan Baker Brown present um, at our event today, and he was talking about actually if you took your um, foundation concrete and if you just reduced it by you know fifty millimeters, you would save the same amount of carbon as giving up meat for a year. And I think when you put it into that context, and those small changes can have huge effects. Um, and I think that's, you know, something because the built environment, we've got a responsibility to start looking at as those every small changes on a project can have a huge problem. But I think, again, it comes back to that carbon literacy. You've got to put it into a context that people understand. So we've talked about a few of the places that people can come and see you guys speak and, and engage with you. Um, where, where can we find out more information and how do people get more involved with Zero Next? So Zero Next actually doesn't have a massive online presence, which is something that we're Yet. working to change. Yes, exactly. That's Julia's, <laughs> Julia's job. But um, in terms of getting involved, I mean, sending me or Julia a message on LinkedIn or Zero Construct um, or any of the Zero Construct guys, there's also a membership form on Zero's website. Um, and when you fill in that membership form, I think you have to put in your birthday and maybe tick that you want to be a Zero Next member. Um, and then I get that information and then I will invite uh, whoever's interested to our weekly meetings. Um, and it's a kind of it's a conversation we have quite a lot about the more people, the better, the more knowledge, the more everyone has a different background. Everyone has a slightly different view. And actually having all of that all together is really interesting. There's something weird in the construction industry. People tend to work in silos. So there's this funny, I mean, there's this relationship between architects and contractors, and they always tend to not like each other. But actually, if contractors fed back to architects and architects spoke to contractors a bit more, it might be an easier relationship and we might build better buildings. So within Zero Next and Zero generally, it's about kind of bringing everyone and everyone's expertise together uh, and learning from it. Yeah, there's real power in that diversity, isn't there? In terms mm -hmm. of, I think you're right, you know, it, so interesting maybe getting a group of young professionals together who aren't ingrained in the in the siloed thinking and the mentality that currently exists in the construction sector and, mm -hmm. and actually just want to go at a problem together with a shared mission and also a, an unbelievably diverse range of skills and backgrounds and, and, and capabilities. And I think I think it's really powerful. I think people should absolutely be seeking you guys out and, and signing up. And so your weekly meetings, what, what format do they take? So it's every two weeks we meet currently on a Wednesday at seven o'clock and they're all online on Teams. But um, we are now, I mean, I'm really keen that we start meeting in person. I think you can get a whole lot kind of thrashed out in person. It's a lot easier to chat in person. Um, and I think our first uh, official Zero Next social is on the 5th of August. Um, but we've got a Zero social with a kind of wider group, which is on the 20th of uh, July. 
Um, so it's, it's all on teams at the moment and it's, it's pretty informal. It's just chatting. Um, and I think we're gonna, with this kind of plan of like planning the, the future, whatever our ideal future is, I think we'll start splitting off into slightly smaller groups. And there might be a group who are going to look at one particular thing and a group who will look at social media and a group who will look at something else. Um, but I think we'll all be working towards that same mission. Another thing that I think is important to mention, and I feel it's important for me, I might be wrong, but the aim of Zero Next is also to make the construction industry attractive for young talent to join. Because before I got my job, I had no idea about what the construction industry was. I was just, I just thought it was buildings and people making buildings, but there's so much more to it. And now I don't see myself working anywhere else. And when I when, still to this day, when I talk to people, they're like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I work in construction. They go like, really? That's a bit boring. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. So it's raising awareness about construction is cool. Come and see for yourself. I've said to Martin and others frequently, I think construction is probably one of the most exciting sectors to be in globally right now with the amount of impact, the potential impact that we can have on improving people's lives, but also improving the health of people with the health of the planet as well. And and it's just cool. There's so much stuff going on. There's so much stuff around materials, around digital, around social. So I totally echo your, your comments there, Jack. We usually wrap this up by asking our guests about their vision of the future. And what do you want to see? Um, and you, know, you, might, you might use the zero next vision, but let's hear it from you guys firsthand. So Tasha, what, what kind of future do you want to see? So I actually, I mean, I touched on this earlier. I, I'm really interested by the whole kind of like build less, build clean, build clever. I think we need to start looking at what we're building and we need to start saying, do we need it? Is it necessary? Is it well designed? Are we optimizing every element of the design? I think we at the moment, I mean, we build buildings like there's no tomorrow. We are building so much and we cannot carry on. We can't carry on building as much as we're building and we have to build sustainably. We have to build using sustainable bio-based materials and sustainable techniques that use less carbon. So I guess my vision for a future is optimizing what we're building and building clean, building bio-based. And Julia? Mine is more around, I wanna see an incentive towards driving carbon reduction. Like we can all be pledging that we need to reduce it, but how do we actually reward and penalize the industry for what they're doing well and what they're doing badly? And yeah, more young people in the industry, more fresh minds, young talent. I'm all about it. I can't wait to see what happens in the next three to five years with Zero Next and the industry as a whole. It's really exciting. Brilliant. Well, this guy's that was absolutely fantastic speaking to you both. And, uh, you know, again, we just really implore uh, the listeners of the podcast to, to, to get along to some of your meetings. And, and, and definitely, definitely. Oliver, fantastic to hear from Tasha and Julia um, all about Zero Next. I mean, that's a real movement that's happening at the moment. I think the things that came through for me from Tasha and Julia was uh, the, the levels of passion, the levels of enthusiasm, the fact that they've managed to, through Zero Next, galvanise an entire uh, area proportion of the industry and young professionals who've really got valuable things and insights and innovations to 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 help us drive towards a net zero future but maybe don't have the platform 
don't have the network yet to be able to do it. So Zero Next is filling that gap perfectly. Um, and it was dead encouraging to speak to them about that. I think another thing that they talk about, which we're incredibly passionate about, and we've covered a lot on this episode, is just the absolute critical need to utilize data to monitor, to baseline, and then to improve upon. So fantastic conversation, some really great insights and, and a, a, a great pair that are really pushing a good agenda with Zero Next there. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, it, it shows the passion. Um, and I think what's great about Zero Next is that they've really got that direct line of communication between the young professionals and the more experienced members of the industry. And there's that real collaboration now of driving real action as well. So, um, you know, be exciting of, of what comes out of that as outputs over, over the next few years. Um, and you, if you want to get involved, um, you know, obviously, you know, they, they told you where to, where to get in touch. So please do that. Likewise, if you have enjoyed the Future Act episode, please like, share and subscribe. Um, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Join our community to stay up to date with all things FutureX. Visit futurebuild.co.uk to sign up. Please also like them and share them to help grow our community. You can subscribe to the podcasts within your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you'll be back again soon.